G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Well, an opportunity today to ask what's been happening in the economic world over this past month. You'll know that the RBA left interest rates on hold on Tuesday. But what does the next 12 months look like? We'll also explore today what the future of money might look like with Alex Cook. And there's talk about central bank digital currencies. We're going to unpack some thoughts around what they are, where we might think of them like cryptocurrencies. So if governments adopt them, what might their motivations be? Alex Cook is the founder of Wealth With Purpose. He's our special guest through this coming hour. And Alex Cook, a former stockbroker, he's been a successful financial planner, is the founder of Wealth With Purpose. His ministry is to help equip Christians to honour God with their finances by teaching sound financial skills. Alex Cook, a special welcome back to 2020. Thanks, Neil. Great to be back again. Hey, Alex, let's start with what's been happening uh, with money, uh, with economic issues around the world over this past month. Uh, Where do you start? (laughs) It's a good question. There's so many uh, areas we could look at. But look, uh, what we're really witnessing, uh, certainly in Europe and America, is just a a gradual slowdown in their economies. Um, in the US particularly, they're starting to really feel the pinch from what they call a credit crunch. That's where the availability of credit starts to dry up. And that's really happened since those banks started to collapse back in March. And uh, you're starting to see the downwards valuations in commercial properties of around you know 30% in many cases because there's huge vacancy rates in a lot of the big American cities. Uh, and I think that's something we will see in Australia in the first half of next year. Our, you know, we'll start to see commercial property particularly come under a lot of pressure. So it looks like we're really moving towards recession. I would say Europe's pretty much in one. Um, America and Australia have had the luxury of, you know, unemployment is very low. So it's hard to have a recession when most people who want a job have got one. Um, but things are certainly slowing down. And obviously the big thing for Australia particularly is just that we've had these uh, rate hikes now for, I don't know how many we're up to now, 12 out of the past 14 months or so. Uh, and that's really obviously starting to bite. And the next six months particularly is when, you know, people have heard of the the thing in the media, no doubt, called the mortgage cliff, where those that had taken out fixed rate loans uh, back in the COVID period, uh, they, many of those fixed rate loans are now uh, expiring, and they're all going onto variable loans at you know they're going from two percent to six percent, and so that's obviously going to have a big impact on people's day to day budgets, uh, and of course, a lot of people are already feeling that already. Um, and not just obviously their mortgages, but energy costs and so forth. So everything's slowing down. Um, and of course, there's still the unknowns that are out there, you know, with the war that's going on. I think even though, uh, you know, we still hear a little bit about it every every day, but there is a huge troop build up in Europe. So we, we've got to pray that that doesn't escalate because obviously it's already a, an enormous human tragedy. 
But if that expands, then it would become a very big global economic uh, issue as well if it gets worse. So lots of things go. There's lots of things going on. Hard to know where to isolate. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know what? Um, the R word, uh, recession, and people are, you know, loosely talking about that for Australia and the hope that the decisions from the RBA and uh, the hope that the decisions that the governments make around finance actually going to keep us from recession. But if we're looking ahead, I mean, a lot of people are asking. Well, if there's no recession likely or expected for Australia, uh, if unemployment is low and the economy is growing, why am I feeling such uh, such pain, such pressure on my finances? Uh, so, I mean, if we don't have recession, uh, that doesn't mean you're going to be without pain. What are your thoughts here about what's coming? Yeah, look, I don't know if I've ever, ever said this before, but I, I refer to Australia as a population Ponzi scheme. Uh, and what, what I mean by that is that Australia, we're seeing our GDP. So GDP stands for gross domestic product. It's basically, the, if you like, the value of all the goods traded, goods and services traded in the economy. So if you like, uh, it's a kind of a gauge of the size of the economy. Uh, and that's in, that's increasing. So, and politicians love to quote that. You know, the economy's growing. That's seen as a positive, and they certainly don't want negative growth on their watch. However, a much more useful measure for us, for, for the average Aussie, is the GDP per capita. In other words, you take that same figure and divide it amongst the population. And when you look at it, that Australia has a declining GDP per capita. And, and so, in other words. If you wanted to put it uh, a summary, you'd say the standard of living is dropping in Australia. That's probably the best way I could say uh, that the GDP per capita is telling us. So on the one hand, because we're bringing in so many immigrants, like I think this year it's around 500,000 or thereabouts, and I think it's a net 1.5 to 1.7 million over the next uh, five years, which is an enormous number of people, that brings in trade, right? That brings in, you know, spending and so forth. So on face value, the economy is growing. But on the other hand, if you, um, it masks the reality that on a per person basis, it's actually declining. Um, and so I think that's why uh, the figures, you, you've got to really decide how do you really measure uh, the true state of an economy is—is is it really uh, fair to just use GDP as our only measure? And I think the answer is no. But many Australians, even though they have a job, um, in fact, there was a report that came out in the last uh, 24 hours where I think one in 10 Australian workers are now having to get a sec- have got a second job, and uh, just to keep up with the cost of living. So a lot of people are, you know, working really hard just to keep, uh, you know, keep. Uh, you know, food on the table. That's a challenge. Okay. Challenge. Interested in, uh, you know, let's come back to this since uh, you had not actually expressed these thoughts before, but Australia, a population Ponzi scheme, the thought that as long as the economy continues to grow, we're all okay. Um, I know that the image that might come to mind for lots of listeners could be, is this like a house of cards that could <laughs> all just uh, be blown down uh, with uh, a breath of air? Uh, and when we're hearing of, um, you know, building companies, going broke. Uh, there's challenges on a lot of different areas in the economy, uh, while some are booming, some are not. Uh, any thoughts here? I mean, is, is this a risky thing? Is this something to be alarmed about? Um, what are your thoughts here? Well, I think certainly the the way we're dealing with it is, is a lazy way of going about it. 
um, we, you know, we need to increase productivity in the economy rather than just bringing in more people. So the, the problem that the Western world has in general is uh, ageing populations. And so there's a, you know, army of Australians. I think in America, there's something like 10,000 people retire every day. It's a huge number of these baby boomers hitting retirement. And so there's not enough, if you like, young people, young workers um, to pay taxes to fund uh, the retirement and, you know, social security centre link, if you like, of the oldies. It's just not there. And that's why uh, Western economies, all of them are doing the same thing. They're all bringing in huge amounts of immigrants to try and supplement their workforces. You know, you've got low birth rates, um, you know, all these sort of things are net negative on the economy. And so politicians are taking the easy option and that is bringing in as many immigrants as you can. Now, I would say immigration in general is a, is a positive, but not when you're bringing in so many so fast because you need the infrastructure to keep up. You know, you need hospitals, you need uh, <laughs> the biggest issue is housing. And that's my fear for many Australians is that those at uh, the lower end social, you know, social economic uh, where, you know, they've got low paid jobs are really going to struggle to pay their rents. And we could, you know, find single mothers you know, sleeping in their cars with their kids because they can't afford to pay their rent. I mean, that's, that's what this is potentially leading to, a homelessness crisis. And it's totally unnecessary in my view. And, and we, need to, we need to stop it. <laughs> uh, homelessness crisis. Uh, in fact, next week is Homelessness Week. It's interesting because uh, there is lots of attention being drawn to the rising homeless situation here in Australia and, and around economic issues. It starts with homelessness. Eventually, uh, people... Uh, get uh, pretty annoyed with that. Tensions begin to build and uh, all sorts of social unrest can develop. And I imagine this is something that we are seeing in various parts around the world. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen the, the massive riots in the last you know six weeks over in France. Um, but the, generally speaking, people don't go out onto the street unless... Uh, they, they are doing it tough financially. That's usually the main underlying factor. So there may be a, um, uh, you know, a different narrative on the surface, but underlying it, people who are generally, if you like, well-fed and in good e- economic positions don't protest as a general rule. And so I think what you are witnessing, and I think you, know, you and I spoke last month about in Australia the inequality issue where 50% of the population have 96% of the wealth and the bottom 50% have only 4%. And so when you've got that kind of growing inequality, that frustration, I think, and that sense of, oh, I can't really ever get ahead, um, you know, the system's working against me, that sort of feeling that people have leads to social unrest. And, and that's why the, the West really needs to change its approach. And my bigger concern with all of this, and this is more um, particularly around climate change policy in the West, um, I would argue the West is committing economic suicide. I mean, we've seen in Holland with their climate change policies, they're basically trying to shut down a third of farmers um, to reduce their nitrogen emissions. In uh, in Ireland, you've got them talking about slaughtering hundreds of thousands of cows in the name of emissions. So, but, you know, we've got global food supply issues and you've got these sort of crazy policies going on. So... Um, you know, we really need to pray for good governance um, and, uh, you, you know, wisdom around these issues, particularly energy, because energy is a huge portion of most people's budgets. 
And uh, the policies that we're adopting now are just going to drive the cost up. And, you know, they announced, uh, what, four weeks ago that energy costs are going to go up another 30% this year. Uh, and so we need good policies that are about creating real solutions for energy, not just following this ideology. Just to, just to, a lot of economically. to deflect our conversation here to a spiritual conversation, because we do like to talk about biblical foundations, uh, what Christians think about these sorts of things. You mention prayer for our national leaders as they're navigating the way forward for Australia. And uh, given that what you've just been sharing, uh, some of that around some ideologically driven policies and, uh, you know, the hope that maybe the immigration policies might just be the, you know, the uh, uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, but so far as the Christian believer and prayer, Alex, sometimes we take a very fatalistic approach and we say, well, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. I'm just little old me. I can't do anything here. Uh, what are your thoughts here for the Christian believer on these big global economic issues and some things that do not seem to make sense when you think of how you'd like to see a society stable and strong. What are your thoughts here for the Christian believer? Yeah, look, I think as, as the Christian believer, we should never put our hope in politicians. You know, our, our belief system is we have hope. You know, we have hope that God, what God one day will restore things, uh, that Jesus will return. Uh, and in that time frame, though, we have a responsibility in our society to bring God's kingdom to earth. You know, we've got to actually make a difference here. And there's lots of ways we can do that. And prayer, of course, is that sort of foundational starting point. You know, we need to be praying for our leaders because as our um, society becomes uh, more and more godless, we are going to lose our prosperity because that we're, we're removing the foundations that made it successful in the first place. You know, that, that sort of Judeo-Christian heritage brings prosperity to the nation because it brings the right values, it brings hard work, it brings all these things that makes a great society. So we need to pray that we return to that. Um, certainly, you know, if you look at the trend, the trend's not going that way. But as, as believers, we all, all have our responsibility to do our role, to fulfil our calling uh, and contribute to the, the betterment of our society. Uh, of course, the only way that's going to really happen at the end of the day is bringing people to Jesus because when people see that uh, and adopt the, you know, the Christian worldview, we will see absolute positive change. We'll see it turn around. But we need to pray, though, for our leaders because um, at the moment the, the ideology that's, that's driving them, this you know, secular humanism, is disastrous and, it, and we'll pay a very heavy price unless we turn it around very soon. And it, now is not the time for Christians to, uh, to back off. This is the time where we need to be really engaging with society, engaging in these discussions and, and praying for leaders because um, it's, it's not going to get any better unless we do something about it. And with God's help, not, not just us, we need God's help in all of this. It sounds simplistic sometimes, doesn't it? Uh, bringing people to Jesus. Uh, but I know that your intention in that, and as you did, did, did describe, uh, coming to a level of maturity, making disciples, and it's disciples around money too. It's disciples around not being economically ignorant so that you can actually make a difference in the community that you live in and ultimately the nation, perhaps even the world. When we're looking over the coming 12 months, uh, if you're looking ahead and saying, what are the things that you might need to watch? 
as a wise Christian, uh, not only concerned about your own family's finances, but your own community, your local church, uh, your business, uh, what sort of things would you be looking out for, Alex? Yeah, I guess the two big economic factors at the moment, obviously inflation is the one that everyone's had their eyeballs on, and that looks like it's slowly starting to come back down. Um, The inflation rate now is 6%. It was a little bit higher a few months ago. What was interesting, though, a uh, report came out, I think it was yesterday, from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And what they do, apart from the official rate of inflation, they break it down into the different subgroups of Australians. So, for example, working families, pensioners, etc. And working families, their inflation rate over the last 12 months has been 9.6%. So they're experiencing more pain. And obviously, working families, many have mortgages and so forth, school fees to pay, that kind of thing. So inflation is the big one. Uh, and really, that's a, the, the government... Uh, has to pull some economic levers here, not just the Reserve Bank. You know, at the moment, it's the Reserve Bank doing all the heavily, heavy lifting by raising rates to bring it down, but the government needs to change its policies, particularly on energy and housing, so that we can get inflation down as quick as possible. Uh, so that, to me, is the biggest. The second one is the geopolitics. You know, America's going into an election year next year, and that looks like it's going to be uh, quite, the, uh, quite the show. Um, given Biden and Trump and what's going on with Trump at the moment. Um, but notwithstanding that, uh, the war is still ongoing and that has a potential significant flow-on effect uh, to the rest of the world. And, of course, China's flexing its muscle now. And the big trend here that I think is really unstoppable is that we're moving from a unipolar world with America in charge to a multipolar world where there's uh, a number of big powers in control, not not just America. And uh, that uh, in itself obviously is causing significant uh, tension. So they're, they're the things to watch and, and they're the trends that, you know, I'm seeing at the moment. Let's touch on that other area that I said we would back in our introduction and this movement towards digital currencies and uh, examples perhaps uh, around what's happening around the world. Uh, We'll talk about those central bank uh, digital currencies, uh, but these have an effect. And uh, the thought, though, you know, as we move into a conversation like that, of course, you know, we've come from a cash economy and things have been been gradually moving towards digital experience. And there's even more digital and crypto currency experience on the way. What are your thoughts here as to where we're headed? Yeah, look, so at the moment, Around the world, about 130 countries are in the process of developing their own uh, what we call central bank digital currencies. Uh, basically, it's very similar, if you like, to Bitcoin. You know, everyone's heard of Bitcoin these days and Tether and a few of these other ones. In fact, there's now more than 10,000 uh, cryptocurrencies. And it's essentially, you know, a form of digital money that can be used for, for transactions. Most, of course, uh, isn't used for transactions at all. It hasn't had a huge wide use. Um, but central banks uh, have now looked at this technology, you know, which is usually referred to as blockchain technology, and are realising that it could be a very, very powerful tool in the future for monetary policy and in particular controlling the money supply in an economy. Uh, and so, 
it's basically like Bitcoin, but it's basically taking the Australian dollar and making a, a digital Australian dollar. Now, a lot of people will go, oh, don't we you have digital money already? You know, when I go into online banking. Well, at the end of the day, online banking is just your physical money, but you're just moving it from you know, one person to another. But it's happening, obviously, electronically. Whereas this uh, central bank digital currency is a whole new thing. Basically, it is programmable money. Now, that may sound a bit strange, but literally the government will be able to program it so that it does certain things. So, for example, you could program it so it has an expiry date. So imagine a situation, let's say Australia's in a recession and uh, the government thinks, okay, we want to stimulate the economy, so what we'll do, and you might remember, I think it was Kevin Rudd that gave everyone $900 or, or thereabouts, they could issue everyone with $900 worth of uh, crypto, you know, central bank digital currency, and but put an expiry date on it. So you have to spend it, otherwise it just vanishes at the end of the expiry date. So it forces everyone to spend that money. So that's one way it can be used. Another way it can be used is uh, so that you can limit what it gets used for. So for example, uh, and this is where the whole climate change thing starts to get a bit more... Uh, you know, sinister. They might, the government might say, okay, we, we need to control people's carbon consumption, like how much meat they consume, etc. And so they could say, right, you can, uh, you're limited to how much meat you can purchase because you've used up your carbon for the month and things like that. And so it's remarkably powerful tool in the hands of government. I would personally argue far too much power, um, but this is what they're developing. It's actually uh, being used like already in Nigeria has started using it and it's been quite problematic there. Um, interestingly, in El Salvador, rather than developing their own, they've actually uh, made Bitcoin legal tender. So you can use Bitcoin in stores in El Salvador. In Australia, no one really buys, you know, does much trading with Bitcoin, so to speak. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a fascinating area. Um, I have some reservations about it, a lot of <laughs> reservations about it, um, but certainly you can see why it's enormously attractive to government because it's going to give them much more power over the economy than they've ever had. That's right. Thinking back to when Bitcoin was becoming popular, it was a little bit like, oh, this is an alternative system and governments would be resistant to it. Well, it seems to have been a turnaround and now governments are excited about it and we might question the motives of government because, as you say, uh, control and power may well be a strong motivator here. And, uh, and is that, as a Christian believer, and you're thinking about what freedom looks like, um, our concern about what money and control, uh, government behaviours like that, you think that's actually a worry? Oh, I think it's a genuine worry because um, essentially they will be able to see every transaction you ever make. Obviously, if you go to an ATM, you take out cash and go and spend it. No one knows how you've spent it. Um, I don't like it when people say, oh, but I've got nothing to hide um, because that's a, that's a dangerous way of thinking about it. It just assumes, you know, this benevolence of the government and then when we – I, I look back on the COVID period and what we saw there was enormous – government overreach and so to me the concern i would have is a similar degree of overreach if you give the government too much power over the currency and their ability to because keep in mind if money's awfully digital they could literally switch someone on and off so if you have a and you know as people many listeners will be aware the government the labor government's trying to propose a misinformation and disinformation bill at the moment 
whereby the the Australian media regulator will be able to determine what is true and what is not, which is a frightening development of free speech. But if you then add in the central bank digital currency into that situation, they might say, right, well, this person keeps leasing disinformation. Why don't we just turn them off? Um, because you know, there certainly are concerns. Alex, why don't we take some calls, first of all, from Joseph in Dubbo in New South Wales. Hey, Joseph, welcome along. Hi, Neil. Um, I have a question for Alex. My question is, I've heard talk about BRICS, and my question is, um, what is BRICS and how will it affect us? Okay, BRICS as in B-R-I-C-S. BRICS, your thoughts here, Alex? Yeah, look, thanks, Joseph, for the question. So BRICS is a... Basically, it's an acronym for the uh, combination of those countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, who have recently sort of partnered together, mainly around trade, um, but there's also talk that they're going to create an alternative currency um, backed by gold. That's what's been discussed in the past couple of months. Um, Now, the reason why they're doing that is because everyone is a bit fed up of America being the the boss, if you like, and particularly having weaponised uh, the US dollar against Russia. So when the war started, America basically used the SWIFT system to shut Russia out of the financial system. And so a lot of these other countries went, oh, hang on a minute, you shouldn't be politicising the, the SWIFT financial system. And uh, and so a lot of these countries start to get got together and say, well, okay, how do we stop uh, using uh, the US dollar as our source of dependency? Um, now, the reality is the vast majority of trade around the world is done in the US dollar. And it's important to say it's not done by governments, it's done by companies. So it's highly improbable that there's going to be a big move away from the US dollar in the short term because it's the choice of currency for companies. It's the the easy option for convertibility. However, what we're seeing is a much bigger long-term trend, and that is away from the US dollar as the reserve currency, and I suspect it will ultimately lose that status in the next maybe even 10 years. So we're going to probably see a big monetary change in the next 10 years. And does the BRICS currency replace it? I I doubt it, but um, we'll see. There's all sorts of things the IMF want to create their own central bank digital currency that will be the alternative for the world, um, kind of like a one-world currency, if you like. So there's all these things going on in the background. But what you're seeing with BRICS is basically these countries getting together and trying to reduce their dependency on the US and try and avoid having to always transact in US dollars. So I think it's basically a sign of the times that we are moving to Uh, in a new direction globally and away from dependency on the US dollar in particular. Joseph, did you have anything more to add? No, thanks, Matt. Thank you, Joseph. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316, 1-800-316-316. You might have your own question or comment or even a critique for our conversation today, 1-800-316-316. You know, if it's going to be companies that operate these cryptocurrencies, Alex, uh, governments might set them all up, but you've got banks who are in the mix there. Um, when we were talking just in this past, uh, in the introductory uh, segment, uh, around uh, about what happens with control, uh, what about banks in the mix? Is that a worry? Uh, potentially. I mean, look, I think 
what we're witnessing, like in Australia, the Reserve Bank has a number of projects going with the major banks as they look at, um, uh, you know, introducing this and developing it. So that's all, so all in that kind of testing phase. The major banks are really going to be a, if you like, the, the logistical vehicle for it. So in theory, if you set up a central bank digital currency, all of us could have a bank account with the Reserve Bank and you'd actually shut the banks out altogether. Now, no, they're clearly... They don't want that, and so the banks are very heavily involved in the development process. And effectively, you'll just have digital, a new digital dollar account with the bank. Um, so they'll be involved. Once again, does it give them any more power than they already have? Probably not. Uh, I mean, at the moment, a bank can still shut you down if they wanted to. Uh, I don't think it necessarily gives them a great deal more power, but I think it gov- gives the government a lot more power than it currently has, um, mainly because it can just exercise more control over how you spend your money and what you spend it on and what you don't spend it on. So I think that's the big change uh, from all of this and, of course, the lack of privacy. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, banks can see all your transactions already through, you know, they collect all the data through the credit cards. You know, a lot of the banks uh, release spending surveys every month showing where people are spending their money and, ha- and whether, you know, credit card transactions are increasing, decreasing and so forth. So a lot of that privacy is already gone, if you like. So I don't think the banks, uh, the banks just want to be part of the, the puzzle and make sure they clip the ticket and <laughs> earn their money along the way. So I think that's all there was that issue, wasn't there, just recently in the UK where Nigel Farage was uh, cut off, uh, debanked, I think they use that terminology, uh, because he had a different opinion to where an ideologically driven bank thought that he should be thinking and that he might not be the sort of customer that that bank might require. Uh, there's a certain way that ideological weaponization happens too in, in just the private sector, not just government. Uh, look, absolutely, and we're seeing more and more of this. Um, what staggered me that Nigel Farage had this happen to him, and it's caused a lot of, you know, personal turmoil in his life as he had to go around and try and find other banks, and he was actually turned away by other banks. Um, but in in, the, in this process, he's discovered that a thousand people a day in the UK are being debanked. Now, some of it is just banks getting rid of non-profitable accounts. You know, people don't meet the account balance, but some of it has been for political reasons. And we're seeing that in the US as well. It it has happened in Australia, but my understanding, or certainly the organisations I've heard of it happening to in Australia have been, you know, considerably less. Uh, But nonetheless, we do have um, major banks really in Australia adopting this kind of woke culture. Uh, And part of it's forced upon them from shareholders. You know, the largest... Uh, shareholder in the world is BlackRock uh, and BlackRock because it's the largest index fund it owns huge portions of most companies through index funds Uh, as a result they exercise enormous power over these companies and over the CEOs and basically it has been for many years forcing their ESG policies onto these large organisations and uh, and so the social policies are coming down through these organisations, and for Christians, I think the challenge is many of the the uh, you know these woke policies are completely uh, the opposite of what Christians believe. And so, you know, if a Christian becomes very outspoken, is there a risk of them being debanked? I think it's certainly, you know, you would say from a biblical point of view, that's where it's likely to be heading at some point. Taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Nabia is in Rockhampton in Queensland. Hi, Nabia. Welcome. 
Hi, thank you. How are you? Very well. What are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts is, um, is it likely that um, is it going to lead to the Revelation 13, where the the person will rule the um, rule everything, and then no buying and selling if you don't have the have the mark or something. Yeah, that's my question. It's likely to do that, yes. Important important question because this comes up often in Christian conversations or in your small groups. Uh, You'll hear these sorts of things talked about from the pulpit in your church, uh, what the Bible teaches around end times, and people have different positions here. But what are your thoughts for Nobia? I do. Look, it's a great question, and my wife and I talk about it. In fact, there's a lot of been a lot of movies lately. In fact, there's a new one that's just come out called Left Behind. You know, it's about the rapture, and uh, in it you have uh, the Antichrist rising in power and taking control over the the financial system through a digital currency, is how the movie you know positions it. Um, and so I think, you know. The Bible tells us, of course, no one knows the day or hour when Jesus is going to return. So it's really hard to know where, where are we in, in time and when is this all going to take place. But what's fascinating to me is it would seem that the technology now exists for that centralised global system. That seems to me to be exist. And therefore, that passage in Revelation where it says no one will be able to trade with the mark of the beast is now a, you know, a potential reality. Um, I think it's possibly further away than we think in the sense that you've got a lot of economies around the world that would be very hard for them to be on a completely electronic system, you know, because they're poor, because they use high levels of cash, all those kind of things. So I don't think it's it's an immediate thing, but certainly when you look at a country like Australia where the level of cash usage is so low now, um, uh, you could see how this technology gets used and fit, fits it <laughs> It's well in with Revelation. So um, I, I wouldn't want to be the guy who's trying to predict it, but certainly it, it certainly is a strong possibility with the way things are heading. Nabia, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. When you talk about the enabling technology uh, in our age, and it might not be every nation and every economy because they're all running at different speeds, but Australia is, yep, it's uh, up at the top in the way that these things are developing. Artificial intelligence and its role in what might be happening, Alex, around money. What are your thoughts here? Look, it's it's a fascinating area, and it's obviously garnered massive interest in the last six months. In fact, it's actually part of the the reason for the stock market rally in the last couple of months, because many people have been trying to buy into these uh, artificial intelligence stocks. You know, companies that are very heavily involved in it, like Microsoft and, and a number of others, and that's actually caused quite a strong rally in the stock market, particularly the NASDAQ stock market, which is the US technology index, if you like. But that's certainly from an investment perspective, there's been huge interest. Um, Just on that, on the investment side of it, um, you know, I've sort of seen this before. Back when I was a broker, I was there during the, what they call the tech wreck back in 2000, when all the internet companies were coming on. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in a morning meeting with the head of strategy and he said, look, in five years' time, 75% of these companies will be broke. Uh, and sure enough, he was right. 
many of those companies went broke and there's going to be some big winners. So I think what you'll see with artificial intelligence, and this is once again from an investment perspective, you'll have a couple of really big winners, those that um, come up with something really uh, amazing and, and there'll be lots of losers in there. So if you are thinking, if you're listening to this and you think, oh, I want to get on the investment train here for investing in AI, my, my stress suggestion here is you adopt very much a biblical approach to it, and that is make sure you diversify because trying to pick winners in a new space is very, very difficult. It's often only in hindsight where we realize there's an amazing, you know, amazing Amazon and Google and these companies that were the early innovators that survived. Um, so that's from an investment perspective. Um, in terms of the economic perspective, I think it's very it's too early to tell the real impact. There's no question it's going to put some people out of work because obviously uh, certain jobs can be automated and we'll see that across all industries. Um, in terms of that, though, there'll be also huge opportunities for new roles. And I would say to people, particularly got young you know, teenage kids, is, is train them up in digital skills because it's going to be a massive industry uh, going forward. Um, but it's also going to create lots of positive things. If I give my example, my industry as an example, so I'm a, a financial advisor. There's a shortage of financial advisors at the moment. Most Australians either can't afford one or can't get easy access to them because there's just not enough of them around. But with the invention of artificial intelligence, many people will be able to get reasonable quality, um, cheaper digital financial advice. Uh, and therefore, a, more Australians should be able to get financial help. Now, it's very early days yet, but I could see this uh, expanding very rapidly over the next five years and, and actually being a good positive win for Australians just in the financial advice space, but that you can apply that to lots of industries. Um, so important, I think, uh, to, to look at it as an opportunity. Yes, there will be a fallout, no question of that, um, but it's also an opportunity for people to get new skills and you know new opportunities as they arrive. We might come back to uh, what as parents we have as aspirations for our children uh, growing up into careers. We might come back to that if we can, but let's take another call. Uh, Richard is in Alstonville in New South Wales. Hi, Richard. Welcome along. Uh, hi, guys. Can you turn the radio down, please? Uh, just a, two questions I had. Um, did you hear the, the remark that um, Elon Musk made a few weeks ago about... Um, in the future, there won't be any need for banks. Can, can you define that? Uh, Alex, are you across that detail? Yeah, so, uh, look, I hadn't seen that specific quote, um, but in theory, that's correct, because with central bank digital currencies, as I think I mentioned too before, in theory, you could actually just have an account with the central bank itself, um, and, and you can just have peer-to-peer -peer money transfers. In theory, you don't need a uh, bank, you just need a, an a tool to be able to transact. Like at the moment, you can use a you know a crypto exchange to send money between people. Um, so that's entirely entirely possible. I think the banks are going to do whatever they can to get in on in this space. And as I say, they're actually actively working with the um, uh, with the Reserve Bank of Australia on these CBDC projects to make sure they're part of the action. So I can't see banks fading away anytime soon but certainly uh, the technology makes what you're saying entirely possible.
Entirely okay. possible. Richard, you had another question? Yes. Um, also, a thing that I've heard goes along with like our one world government and AI technology and all this sort of stuff as well. They're saying in China already, um, communist nations have already adopted this technology where apparently they will be able to make our wage and money um, expire within a certain period. They're trying to control money to the extent. Do you know anything about that? Uh, you're talking about this yes, just Alex. a little earlier, yeah. Alex. Uh, thoughts on that one? Yeah, it's a hundred. Yeah, no, it's a hundred percent possibility. The the thing with these currencies, what makes them unique, and what makes them even different to the, the current, you know, bitcoins of the world, is the fact that they're programmable. So the the government can issue the currency and have an expiry date on it. Which, I mean, I I, I don't like it CBDCs because I think they give far too much power to the government. So I'm not in favour of them. In saying that, you can imagine the benefit from a political point of view of being able to issue every citizen with a thousand, you know, crypto, you know, a thousand, you know, digital dollars uh, and then put an expiry date on it, which forces them to spend it in the economy to boost the economy. So you you can see why a government would love it. Um, But the answer is yes, uh, that's entirely possible because it's programmable. The money is programmable. But where it gets more concerning, though, is that they could put geographic restrictions on it. So, I mean, many Christians would have heard about discussions around 15-minute cities and all these things to try and, uh, you know, limit human mobility, you know, for climate change reasons. And essentially what they could make it is so that your digital currency only works in your area, which then limits your mobility. So you can see why these things are amazing on the one hand, but, but have considerable uh, risks attached to them for human freedom. Considerable. Richard in Austinville, thank you so much for your call. Let's put a line under calls. Only a few minutes left for our conversation. If we're coming back around the Christian believer, uh, someone who is aware of some of these sorts of things you've been talking about, Alex, and not fearful but concerned, Uh, thinking Mm. about their own personal direction for the future, thinking about their children growing up in this world that is changing so fast. I wonder if you've got any thoughts on what you should do to prepare uh, without being sort of, Mm. I guess, uh, you know, you can be in some ways, you know, you can be in in the the prepper mindset or you could be saying, well, I can make (laughs) a real difference here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I I love uh, the book of Proverbs. And there's a fabulous passage in there that says, a sensible man prepares for problems ahead and prepares to meet them. Uh, The simpleton never looks and suffers the consequences. And so to me, what God expects of us is to, you know, he's given us uh, these amazing brains to to prepare and do things. So the, the danger with the prepper mentality that's often out there is it's about sort of escaping from the world. And and I don't think Christians are called to do that. You know, I think we're, you know, we're called to come into the world and help resolve problems and fix things and bring God's kingdom to the earth and to win people uh, to Christ. So we're not called to withdraw and to just disappear and hide in the mountains, so to speak. Uh, Now, if God calls you to particular places, that's a separate issue. Uh, But certainly, you know, we've got to be in the world, just just not of it. Um, But when we can see some of these trends, where they're heading, I think it's entirely sensible to prepare. So, you know, over the years, Neil, you and I have spoken about getting people out of debt. And the reason why we're speaking about that is it was very obvious that at some point, 
interest rates were going to rise. Now, did, did I think they were going to rise as quickly as they have? No, it didn't. But you could see that one day it was going to happen. So this is the issue about a sensible man looks for these things ahead and says, well, what may happen? So if we, the Bible sort of gives us you know, signposts of what was likely to happen in the future, and therefore we can prepare. And so I think you know, Christians should learn new practical skills, whether it's you know, things from uh, learning about investing, maybe buying tangible assets so you don't have all your money in the bank, you know, have a little bit of gold as well as a, a, a geopolitical you know, hedge, uh, maybe even learn how to have a veggie garden. You know, there's all these things. And I, I, I want to be careful because you don't want to sound extreme because we just don't know uh, the speed of which these things recur. But you've got to, at the end of the day, you've still got to live in the world and fulfill the calling that God has on your life and be an active participant in growing God's kingdom, not just sort of bunker down um, and, and protect yourself. That's, that's not God's way because ultimately we're dependent on God for his provision and his protection. We don't need to do that ourselves. But it is still very wise stewardship to prepare for different scenarios going forward and also to take advantage of them because, uh, you know, with all these things going on around the world, there'll be opportunities. And so we need to have that, that sort of uh, correct mindset, I think, towards it and being good stewards with what God's given us. But don't run and hide. Don't run and hide. In fact, look for the opportunities. And I think what we're all taking away from a conversation like this, Alex, is The main thing to know is that there are many main things that we need to know when it comes to money and faith, money and faith. And you can be swept along in the current uh, or you can take a God's eye view and apply some scriptural foundations as you're so ably able to uh, explain Alex Cook. Always just great insight. And for listeners to connect with Alex, You can do so at his website, Wealth With Purpose. I mentioned that Alex's ministry is to help equip Christian believers to honour God with their finances by teaching sound financial skills. Sometimes we just shy away from that and by going, well, what would God have to say about my money? Well, you might be surprised. You can check out some e-books and the My Toolkit. Uh, There's video content, podcast content, at wealthwithpurpose.com. Connect with Alex Cook there. You can follow him on Facebook and Twitter. There's an Ask Alex email too, askalex at wealthwithpurpose.com. Alex, always great insights. Thanks so much for sharing those with listeners today on 2020. Thanks, Neil. Lots of fun chatting with you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.